you're uh, with us again for the first time, thank you for joining us. Um, we uh, are working our way through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I've been preaching a series that I've entitled The Way of Paradox, Following the Right Side Up King in an Upside Down World. Uh, we're going to be looking at two passages uh, today and then next week, climaxing with Easter. Uh, spoiler alert, uh, it's about the resurrection. Um, but nonetheless, uh, we'll, we'll kind of talk about what the next two weeks are looking like. Uh, if you have your Bible with you today, you can open it to Mark's Gospel. We're in chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We've got the, the words up on the screen. Uh, but I do uh, want to know, let you know that there are some Bibles available for you to take. Uh, out on the table at our Next Steps table, right outside the doors of our space here, uh, those are free for the taking. So if you'd like to have a Bible uh, from the version that I read and preach from, uh, please take that and then... Bring it back when you join us uh, next week. I've made mention a, a couple times already in the service that today's Palm Sunday. Uh, Palm Sunday marks the, the week of Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem and uh, how he would fix his eyes on the cross and conquering death, sin, and Satan. And um, I've chosen not to preach the passage on the triumphal entry, as good as it is. I've chosen actually to fast forward to Friday which is uh, the death of Jesus. And so today we're going to be looking at, at the cross and uh, what, what actually happened there uh, the week of, of Jesus' death. So let's, uh, let's turn our attention to God's Word. I'm going to read beginning in verse 21 of Mark chapter 15, and I'm going to read down through verse 39. So let's, let's give our attention to the Word of the living God. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, leme sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this, the word of our God, will stand forever. Let's go to God and ask him to bless the preaching of his word. Father, we come now 
to perhaps a familiar passage of Scripture, at least a, a familiar theme to Christianity, the, the death of your son Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would give us fresh eyes and fresh ears and fresh hearts to see what is actually happening here. And I pray now that, that you would use me to boldly contest to the goodness of your grace that's found on the cross and how it can change everybody in this room. And so, Lord, I cannot do that on my own. It must be by your Spirit. And so we pray now, Spirit, that you would come and that you would move here and that you would change people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't watch a ton of live TV. Uh, I don't know how many of you do. Uh, you know, we, we have DVR and, and Netflix and all these things where we can binge watch and fast forward through all the commercials. But, but March Madness is in full swing here. And uh, March Madness, along with the Super Bowl, provokes the commercial lover in me. And so this weekend I've gotten to enjoy some good commercials. And, and uh, the, the, the reference I'm actually going to make is, is actually to an older commercial. But uh, many of you are familiar with Geico Insurance, correct? They've done some very witty marketing. Um, I love commercials because it really just shows who people are. It really it touches on, on us in all the right areas. But, but they had a, um, I think it's a pretty recent kind of subset of marketing on these commercials where Geico, the line was this. Did you know that you could save 15% or more on your car insurance uh, if, with Geico? And then the answer is, well, everybody knows that. And then they go on to say something witty like, well, did you know that playing cards with Kenny Rogers gets old really fast? Or, well, did you know that an auctioneer doesn't make a great grocery clerk? You know, I, I don't know if you've seen these, but, but it's really witty. Um, but, that, but that line in there, well, everybody knows that because Geico is, is all about the saving 15% or more on your auto insurance with Geico. Everybody knows that. This passage is kind of one of those passages at least if you've been around the Bible or Christianity, even a little bit. It's kind of one of those, everybody knows Jesus died on a cross for the forgiveness of sins, right? We kind of generally know that. But, but the connection here today that, that I'm hoping to make is actually one that, that, that helps us explore the deeper meaning and significance behind the events. Um, if you uh, were around in the, I think it was maybe... It was probably early 2000 when Mel Gibson's movie came out, uh, The Passion of the Christ, which highlighted the death of Jesus, and it was supposed to provide all this great revival in our land, and everybody was going to go see this movie and be saved, and, and all of those things, which did not necessarily happen. Um, but, but the emphasis of that film was the physicality, the, the suffering, the pain of the cross, and, and, and that it was. It, it indeed was. Um, but, but Mark's gospel account actually is strikingly different. He actually makes very little reference to the physical nature of what's taking place here. He makes a lot of comments surrounding what's going on around it and in it, but the physical actually pain of it is, is kind of subliminal. It's kind of background noise, if you will. You see, crucifixion as, as mere capital punishment as mere physicality, will really not change your life. It, it won't. Like, if you just look at it in terms of that. But if you look at the cross and the death of Jesus in the way that I'll suggest that we look at it today, I think it could change everything about your life. Because what's actually happening on the cross is Jesus is giving us access to God like nobody has ever had before. And my suspicion is that all of us want some access to God. 
We want to know him. We want to know about him. We want to know things surrounding our circumstances in our life and what it means. And my submission to you as we look at the death of Jesus today is is actually that, that Jesus provides the access that all of us are looking for today. Um, last week, I, I kind of used this little summary phrase, and I'm going to use it this week similarly and next week also. I just can't get away from it. Last week, we looked at the death of Jesus in the garden, and we talked about the empty cup. If you were with us, you remember the cup that Jesus drank. And I said that if you want to trust God more, an empty cup is what you need. Is what you need. This week, we're going to talk about that access to God. And so here's the big idea that the bottom line about this passage that I want us to take away today is, is that if access to God is what you want, a torn curtain is what you need. Okay, so if access to God is something you're interested in, a torn curtain is what you need. And we'll, we'll get there as we, as we look through this passage. But here's how I want to break up the passage. Um, I want us to look at three things today. First, I want us to look at the outside rejection that Jesus faced. And then I want us to look at the inside rejection that Jesus faced. And then lastly, I'm going to look at how outsiders are brought inside. Okay? So let's consider first the outside rejection that Jesus faced. Uh, Mark always gives us setting and scenes and context, and the, the case is no different here. Uh, we did skip a little bit of the, the narrative from last week, from the garden to, to the cross here. And so what's taken place here is Jesus is now going up a hill to Golgotha. Uh, the, the passage actually and tr- translates it for us as Golgotha, which also means the place of a skull. Just kind of Bible FYI here. We get our word Calvary from here. So it comes from the Latin calvis. And so some translators, particularly in Luke's gospel, use that word, which is where we get Calvary, which is just another word for skull. So Golgotha, Calvary, that's just Bible tidbit knowledge there. But, but here, we, here we are headed towards Golgotha, and we're going up this hill. And the scene is that Jesus cannot carry his own cross. Well, the reason that is so is because that what had just happened was Jesus had an encounter with a whole battalion of Roman soldiers. Now, Roman soldiers were professional executors. This is what they did for a living. They put people to death. They tortured them. They punished them. And Jesus had just spent time doing that with them. They had scourged and flogged him. Again, I'm not going to go into all the gritty details, but let me let you know this, that Jesus at this point, walking towards Golgotha, had a bare back. He had been lashed with bone and metal that were in a a lash, and they had ripped his back open. And after torturing him in that type of way, they then laid the cross beam across him, and he was expected to carry that wooden beam up the hill on his bare back. So you begin to feel some of the the physicality of the pain that's taking place. And he goes up and he cannot carry his own cross. He cannot do it. And so here we see Simon of Cyrene uh, just coincidentally coming into the scene. And he's brought into the the scene to carry Jesus' cross for him. He takes it the rest of the way where Jesus would be put on the cross beam through nails, where the upright piece was on this hill fixated for these crucifixions, and Jesus was placed on it. We begin to see some of the layers of the pain that Jesus is facing as we see these opening verses, but, but it kind of goes even into greater detail when he's offered this wine mixed with myrrh. Now, wine mixed with, with myrrh was, was a, basically a cultural narcotic for these. This is what the, the Roman soldiers would have used to kind of numb the pain. 
right? This would have been a painkiller to us. It was to them. And so they offer that almost in mercy to Jesus, seeing the pain that he was in. They offer him this wine mixed with uh, myrrh to deaden and uh, lower the pain that he's in. And what does Jesus do? He refuses it. Okay, so Jesus, wanting to taste the fullness of the pain that he's, he's bearing for his people, he, he refuses it. And so at the beginning, this outside rejection is the, is the pain piece. He's experiencing heightened amounts of pain in his rejection. But the text and the narrative continues. It goes on to say that the, that the soldiers then put him up on the cross and they divided his garments in other words, they ripped his clothes off of him. It would have been a one-piece tunic. And then they, they cast lots. They, they threw dice to see who was going to get it because it was, it was one piece. And so they didn't want to rip it and make it useless. And little did they know, these Roman soldiers were actually fulfilling a passage of the Old Testament, the passage that actually Tito read a portion of, Psalm 22. And so in Psalm 22, it forecasted, it predicted this prophecy that the coming king would lose his garments and that they would be cast lots for. And so here the soldiers, unbeknownst to them, are fulfilling God's plan of redemption in their own actions. Jesus is stripped, ashamed, naked on a Roman cross. Okay? He's in pain. He's experiencing shame. But the, the third piece of this kind of this outside rejection is the, is the people that are around him and the, the vices that their lives were filled with and also the voices. Now, the other gospel accounts go into great detail. They have the interaction with Jesus between these two robbers, right? There's the, the interaction between them. Mark's account does not have that. So Mark highlights the mocking voices surrounding Jesus, not only the two robbers, but all of the religious people, and amongst him, probably people that had been following him, beginning at Palm Sunday and now at the foot of the cross. And so here we see Jesus being utterly rejected, mocked by the voices of men. This is the king of the Jews. He's dealing with this outside rejection in, in ways that, quite honestly, none of us could face. Here's how I want to connect it to, to your life, is what Jesus is facing here is everything that we fear most. So, so Jesus is facing the things that we fear most, pain, shame, rejection. And here's why. He's not, he's not facing this and enduring this so that we'll never face any of those things. He's not making that promise. What he is making the promise is that we will never ultimately face those things. And so here, let's, let's just consider just briefly each of these, how we may taste these things temporarily, pain, shame, rejection, but never ultimately. Pain, physical pain is a terrible thing. It's the byproduct of life living in a fallen world. All of us are experiencing, I was talking to, to someone today about how every week we're just getting older, right? We grow up with aches and pains and, and all of those things, but it's that temporary aspect, right? It's the taste of the fallenness of who we are. It's not the ultimate. And so it's one thing to be stricken by a fallen body, and it's another to be stricken by the living God, which is Jesus is doing. And so we have a byproduct of pain in our lives that we experience and taste, but Jesus is facing it in the ultimate sense. Think about shame. 
Shame is something that is, that is something we try to avoid at all costs to ourselves. We want to be the best parents. We want to be the best workers. We want to be the best people that we can be. We want to be the best at everything, and we want to put that front on for everybody in order to do what? To be, avoid being exposed. We want to do everything we can because we don't want to experience shame. And so when we are found out, sometimes we are, that we're not the best at everything, that we're not perfect, we become vulnerable in a way that shows us our frailty, but not in the way that Jesus is being exposed. You see, Jesus is exposed in the fullness of sin. Jesus becomes who we really are and faces what we really should in his shame. Think about rejection. We live in a culture that despises rejection. We hate being rejected. We, we love approval and acceptance. We live for it. We thrive on it. Jesus was ultimately rejected in a way that, that none of us could ever bear ourselves. And so we see this outside kind of rejection. We see the pain, the shame, the rejection. But, but if you think that's deep, wait until we see the inside rejection that's happening. Look with me, beginning in verse 33, uh, down through 37 at the inside rejection. Um, last week I mentioned that we talked about the cup. We talked about how Jesus, you know, in the garden asked that the cup would pass from him and, and God told him no. He said that this cup of wrath would come to him. So what we're seeing on the cross here today is Jesus drinking the cup of wrath. That, that's what's taking place is, is Jesus is doing what God sent him to do, namely to drink the cup of wrath that was supposed to come to us and instead went to him. And so everything about the cup was about judgment. Everything was about being cast into God's sight and being judged. And what we see, uh, I love how Mark gives us all these hinters. There's, there's always these little insights in Scripture that show us kind of the, the raw reality that real people were there. He gives us the time markers for this whole thing. So if you notice in our reading, it said that, that this whole ordeal began at the third hour. In our understanding of things, that would have been 9 o'clock. So the, the, the beginning of the pain, shame, and rejection, that the external rejection that we just talked about, was at 9 o'clock. Well, now we jump up and it's noon. So he's experienced now three hours of the outside rejection. And beginning at noon, darkness falls on the land. Utter darkness falls from noon until 3 o'clock. Three hours of darkness now listen, there are always naysayers and skeptics to, to supernatural events like this in the Bible, and this is no exception. So people want to see an event like this and say, well, that's kind of that's primitive. That's funny that they thought darkness was on the land. It, it was really just a dust storm, right? A, a dust storm covered the sun up, and, and it was really just kind of gloomy that day, and they called it darkness. Well, no, this was actually during the wet season in Jerusalem. There would have been no dust storm. Another common uh, refrain uh, of an objection of things like this is that, oh, this is a solar eclipse. We all experience solar eclipse. We're so scientifically minded that, oh, of course the sun was covered. Well, well a couple of things on that. Solar eclipses have never happened for three hours at a time, and they don't, certainly don't happen during the full moon, which is when the Passover always occurred. And so you'll, you'll, you'll hear arguments against supernatural things like this, but the reality is they're, they're frail and they're weak because what's happening here is supernatural darkness of judgment falling on the land, which was exposing not only what was happening on the land, but also what was happening inside of Jesus. And so what's, what's going on internally in Jesus is he's being judged by God. It's not pain that overwhelms Jesus. 
judgment does. How do I know that? Look at what his response is. Verse 34, Mark records it in the very words that Jesus would have said, Eloi, Eloi, lemi sabachthani. It's Aramaic. Those would have been the real words of Jesus. He gives us the translation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus doesn't say my head, my head, or my hands, my hands, or, or my friends, my friends. He says, my God, my God. He's being utterly forsaken and abandoned by God. The deepest love that humanity has ever known is being ripped apart. Listen, let me, let me try to put some, some flesh on this. If one of you were to come up to me after church and say, Adam, we've been coming to church now at Mosaic for you know, a number of weeks, and you know, we really like the church, and we love the music, but your preaching, oh, not so good. And you know, I, I do, we don't like your preaching, and we never really want to see you again. And, um, you know, if, if you came up to me after church and said that, I would be hurt. I would. I would be upset. I would feel bad and terrible. But if my wife came up to me after church and said the exact same thing, it would be a little more devastating, right? Do you see how the, the, the I, I love you all, but I love my wife way more than I love you. And so, so it's that deep, long-lasting love that hurts worse. And that's what Jesus is experiencing to the eternal effect, right? So, so what we know about Jesus is that he was never created, that he has always existed in perfect unity with the Godhead, God the Father, God the Spirit, and, and Jesus, God the Son. And so what we literally see here is Jesus seeing him lose that long and deep and lasting and eternal love. It's being separated, He's facing the darkness of judgment. And he's facing not only judgment, but he's facing loneliness like nobody else ever has. Utter abandonment. He cries loudly. Mark doesn't record which words those are. And he experiences this inside loneliness that so many of us fear. He's again offered wine. This time it's not wine mixed with myrrh. It's sour wine. This type of wine had the exact opposite effect of wine mixed with myrrh. So sour wine would have been used as a stimulant. It would have heightened and prolonged the death process for Jesus. And does he refuse this one? It doesn't seem that he does. It appears that he actually takes this one in order to heighten his senses of the judgment and the loneliness that are falling on him. Why would Jesus do that? Well, here's why. Jesus is facing and enduring everything that we avo avoid most, judgment and loneliness. He's facing judgment and loneliness that we might never face it like that. Again, let's just touch on these, kind of put, put skin in our own lives, what this looks like. Let's, let's talk about judgment. We live in a culture that breathes the air of non-judgmentalism, right? Don't judge me. Right? Don't look at me and, and cast your judgment upon me. We do everything we can to avoid judgment. We do everything we can to avoid loneliness. Um, I mean, think about, we, I mean, we are really a, a culture that's paralyzed by the idea of being alone. Um, you go to a, a social situation where you don't really know anybody, you're kind of you know, going into this area. What's the, what do you normally do? Get out your phone and you act like you're doing something, right? Yeah, I'm not the only one that does that. I know that. 
You know, I, I read some article, I don't know how the stats, this just kind of came to my mind, but, but we look at our phone just this obscene amount of times because what is it that we fear? Being alone, right? Um, we, we fear loneliness in so many different areas of our lives. And, and, and listen, if you're, this is, this is kind of a funny one I thought of this week, is if you're single and you're of marrying age in the church, say you're 20 plus or whatever, the, the, the funny thing is that you're not the one that's so scared of being alone. It's actually the married couples that are scared for you, right? They think that singleness is some, somehow some dreaded curse, like you can't have a satisfied, fulfilling life being single. But if you've been alone or you've been single in the church and, and these married couples, you'll know they're always trying to find somebody for you, right? And so they are paralyzed by your loneliness and you're like, I'm good. Like, it's okay. Jesus loves me. It's okay. But it's, it's, that, it's that culture in us that we're scared to be alone. Why is this? Well, the reason is we were made to be with God. We were never made to be alone. And so, again, Jesus is facing here everything that we fear most, judgment and loneliness. So, now that we've seen the outside rejection that Jesus is facing, we've seen some of the inside rejection that he's facing, what's our response to that? Like, how does this change us? And I think we see that in the final few verses there, uh, 38 through verse 39. So let's look, lastly, at how outsiders are brought inside. We've got a six-year-old son. For those of you who don't know, he's the guy that's usually whipping by, like at rapid speeds, Jaden. And Jaden has this thing where he collects rocks right now. Not sure if this is normal. I think it is. But there are rocks all over our house, seemingly pointless rocks. There are rocks in our kitchen. There are rocks on my bookshelves. There are rocks on my nightstand. There are rocks everywhere. And I'm a little tidy. I'm a little OCD. And I throw the rocks away because they're just rocks to me. And what I've discovered over the past several months of this rock faddish that my son has is that these rocks all have meaning. These rocks symbolize places to him or events to him. He's got a rock that, that Gabriel gave to him when we went to his house. That one's got a special spot in our kitchen. He remembers that. Uh, he's got another rock that, that symbolizes, oh, remember we were at the baseball field and I picked up that rock? Where is that, Dad? I don't know where that one went. But so, so for Jaden, these rocks are items that have purpose and remembrance. That they're etched into who he is. Um, I think it really, it's, it's just really keen. I think God made us like that. I think it is normal for Jesus to do that, uh, or for, for Jaden to do that, and, and Jesus, I think. But um, so, so the last week, I wanted to leave you with the image of the cup, right? The empty cup. I really wanted you to walk away from thinking about how Jesus drank the fullness of the cup. Well, well, this week, I want you to leave with yet another powerful image and reminder that you can walk away with, and it's that torn curtain, Right? It's, the, it's the torn curtain that we're going to address here in a minute. And so at the beginning of the sermon, I said that, and, and let me just repeat it, is, is that if access to God is something that you want, a torn curtain is what you need. So let's look at where I'm coming from on that. In verse 38, Jesus has uttered his last breath. He's, he's, he's had a loud cry, breathed his last, and then in verse 38 it says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, for most of us, that means very little. So let's do a little bit of cultural and kind of Old Testament background. There was a temple in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus is just outside of the gates of Jerusalem at the hill of Golgotha. 
The, the, the crucifixion had to take place out of the city. So he's up on a hill, presumably where you could actually see the temple. And there was a, a, a great passer, a, a highway, a, a, basically the passing way where many people came into the city from. And so upon his death at the temple, we see that a curtain was torn. Now, what, what curtain was that? There were actually two curtains in the temple. One was the, the entryway into what we would call like the main sanctuary space. It's kind of the, the courtroom area where, or the courtyard area where all of the, the fur, tabernacle furniture was. And then the second curtain was the one that separated that common sanctuary space from the Holy of Holies. Now, I, I kind of I labored through all the commentaries, and you know, there's some, some debate on which curtain it is. I will spare you of the boring details, and let me just compel you with this. I believe it was actually the second curtain, and there's a couple of reasons why. One of the reasons is kind of that textual stuff, the word Mark uses, all of that kind of boring stuff. But the second reason is that second curtain, is it had everything to do with access to God. This curtain was the great divider, the great barrier, the condemner of the world that God could not be with ordinary people, right? So this curtain separated a 30 by 30 foot cubicle. And in that cubicle was where God's very presence dwelt. There was one piece of furniture in it, the Ark of the Covenant. It's a little square box. It was laid in and out with gold. And it had two 15 feet cherubim. They're, they're angelic figures. And, and don't think chubby angels on clouds. Think scary, frightening angels surrounding this piece. And on top of that furniture was the mercy seat. Okay? The mercy seat was symbolic that entrance into God's presence required mercy, but it also required divine justice. And so only one person one time a year could go into that room. It was the high priest. And after extensive cleansing rituals, he would be able to enter into that room, make atonement or make payment for the sins of the people, all the animal sacrifices, all those types of requirements that God had. He would make payment for the people. He would then exit the room and the people would be good for another year. It was a perpetual and annual thing where God's people could experience access to God, but it was always in such a detached way. And so what we see here is Mark records for us what happened after Jesus breathed his last. The, the curtain was torn. It was utterly ripped. Now, this was no light, flimsy linen. This was a 24-inch thick curtain. This was not a windstorm that knocked this thing down. It was utterly ripped. And notice the way the text says it in verse 38. Or, yeah, verse uh, 38. It was torn from top to bottom. Why would Mark record that? Well, he would record that for this reason. He was making it utterly evident to us that it was God coming from himself to us to make a way possible to come to him. And so what we see is this torn curtain dropped down in order that full access to God might be available. There is no more barrier. The barrier has been dealt with in Christ. And so the, the next question you should be asking yourself, well, well, who is this access made to and how can I have it? And the answer is in verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. The very first person to look and to see Jesus dead and crucified for them was the very one that put him to death. His enemy 
is the one that comes and has access to God like this. Now listen, this centurion was not an officer. He didn't just get this position. He was actually enlisted. He actually worked his way up the ranks. And you know how he did that? By doing a lot of executions. This man had seen things many of us have not seen. He has done things many of us have not done. And he had become hardened in a way that many of us hopefully are not hardened. Yet he is the first one to come and have access to God like this. You see, what this man saw, you know, it's, it's a bit of speculation. But what he saw, he had seen many people die. He had seen many people executed. This was nothing different for him. But what he saw in Jesus was this tender, trusting man embracing death that, that all of us would have buckled under, and he embraced it in its fullness. You see, what Jesus offers us for access to God is, is the life that you and I were supposed to live, the life of perfect obedience where we don't mess up at all. He did that. And not only did he live that life that you and I were supposed to live, but he, he walked up that hill and he died the death that you and I should have died for not living perfectly. And so here we see him drinking the wrath that should have come to us. And then, sneak preview next week, we'll talk about how Jesus now will conquer death by rising over it bodily. In other words, saying, sin, Satan, and death have no more dominion over my people. Access to God has been made. If you're here today, um, you need to know that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you are a soldier who's killed people, if you're a pastor, if you're a soccer mom, if you have a dark history and past, access to God has been made. And so the question remaining that I'd like to close with is actually twofold. The first is, perhaps if you've never tasted of this access, and the question is, how can I have access to God like that? And I want to draw your eyes back up to verse 32. Verse 32 was the mocking voices that said, if you are really this king who's going to save, take yourself off the cross so that we can see and believe. That's all they wanted to do was see and believe. And then the centurion down in verse 39, what does he do? He sees and he believes. And he's given access to God. I don't know what you know about Christianity, whether it's a, if you think it's a religion filled with rules and etiquette. But here is the primary thing you need to know leaving today. Is that Jesus calls us to see his work on the cross for us and to believe. That's all he asks, is that we would see and that we would believe that we have access to the living Son of God. And so, what if our lives were entirely shaped by the reality that God has made this access available to all of us? Like, what if we really believed it? I know we talk about it, we sing about it, we pray, but what if we really believed that seeing and believing that Jesus died for us, rose again in our place, how would that change everything about us? Well, here's how I want to close, is, is by taking a few promises and the realities of our lives and how it could change everything. So if you're experiencing some sort of physical anguish and pain that perhaps you brought upon yourself or perhaps was, had nothing to do with you, you can know that this is not God's judgment on you. That passages like Romans chapter 8, verse 1 tell us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those 
who are in Christ. Maybe you're somebody who lives for approval. You, you live for acceptance, and when you're rejected, it utterly crushes you. You can know that if God is for you, then who can be against you? If you have approval like that from God, then rejection from others, it's really nothing in the grand scheme of things. If you are struggling with the idea of being lonely, if, if your heart is lonely, you feel utterly abandoned and forsaken, you can know that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. The, the end of Romans chapter 8 talks about how neither height nor depth nor width nor, nor, nor anything in all of creation can separate us from the love of God for sinners in Christ. Listen, brothers and sisters, this work that happened here on Golgotha, on Calvary's hill, is something that can change your life forever. And I pray that as we continue to explore the depths of Christ's death and resurrection for us, that we would grow and that our lives would be changed forever and ever. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, I pray that, um, that our gazing and our study of your word would not grow cold, uh, that we would see yet again with fresh eyes and fresh ears um, your goodness to us in Christ. And Lord, if there, if there should be any here today that have never tasted of the goodness of access to you, I pray that, that, you, would, that you would compel them to come in that you would show them that there is nothing that we can do to neither lose nor earn your love that you secured it for us on the cross. And for those of us who are trusting and have been trusting, I pray that you would help us to cling even closer to that cross and, and that we would see that uh, the work that was accomplished on it for us, that we might know you in your fullness. And we pray these things in, in Christ's matchless name. Amen.